0: Well hey good morning everyone how we doing good. good can you do me a favor can we thank Pastor Taylor and his team for leading us so well in worship this morning um already feel like we've had a good morning and have met with the Lord, which is so cool. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 4. We're going to be in John 4, and we have people coming down the aisles, as always, who would love to get a a copy of God's Word to you. If you don't have one, just raise your hand, and we'll make sure you have that. And um, this weekend is a big weekend for us here at Harvest. This is kind of our ministry launch weekend. It's the weekend after Labor Day routines are normalizing. Kids are back in school. And for us, things get really busy here starting this week. Many of you know uh, small groups kick off this week. And some of you might have already met uh, in small group uh, last night or maybe even uh, tonight. Uh, We have our junior high and high school ministry. Their kickoff party is tonight at our Grand Haven campus. And I would just say, if you have junior hires or high schoolers, uh, be a parent and make sure they're there. Uh, It's going to be an incredible year, and there's no better way to start off the year right than to be at that party. I would argue, and I think you would agree, um, it is more important than ever that our kids are surrounded by good biblical voices in their life. Amen? And uh, prioritize that. Again, that is tonight at our Grand Haven campus. And uh, what we're doing is, is we're also starting a brand new sermon series this week, which we are calling Lift Up, Hold High, Love Well. And some of you may know that is actually the mission statement at our church. We're going to spend three weeks going through our mission statement, which is Lift Up the Name of Jesus in Worship. Hold high the authority of God's word and love one another and those outside our church as Jesus loves them. And uh, the reason we're doing this series, the reason we're taking three weeks to kind of talk about who we are and our mission statement is twofold. Uh, Here's the first. It's a good reminder of who we are as a church and what we're striving to be. I think if you are at work and someone were to ask you, oh, I hear you go to Harvest, I see the vertical sticker on your bumper on your car, what's Harvest all about? I think it's important that you can answer them in a way that's clear and concise. This is who we are trying to be as a church. And then the second is this series is really going to serve as a heart checkup. I really think through the summer it's very easy to get selfish, it's easy to get distracted, and what we're going to do these next three weeks is really kind of realign our hearts. We're going to ask the questions, am I really living how I say I believe? What are my priorities? What am I truly living for? Does my life match up to what my values actually are? And so this week we're beginning with a phrase, uh, which is so important here, and it's this idea that we as a church are committed to be a church that lifts high the name of Jesus in worship. And so if you're taking notes, here's the first thing we need to talk about, is I actually think this idea of worship, it's a problem for us. And, And here's why. I think we have a problem that most Christians can't articulate what it means to be a worshiper of God. I actually think this idea of worship in church culture is very convoluted and very, very confusing. Here's what I mean. I think if I were to ask a hundred people in this room, what does it mean to be a worshiper of God? I would hear a lot of ums and maybes and I think like, and I might get 70 different answers from a hundred different people. And here's part of why this is so confusing. Um, We have worship services we have worship conferences, we have worship degrees, we have worship schools, we have worship pastors, we have worship radio stations, we have a whole worship music industry, right? So let's ask ourselves the question, what is worship? Is it only something that happens in church? Does it have to involve music? Like, what if you're a terrible singer, Right. People next to you are probably nudging you right now. Like, yes, this is for sure a thing with you. Can I worship if I can't sing well? Does it involve other aspects of my life? Here's one that I've really wrestled with. How can I know if my worship is actually genuine or not? Like, how do I know if God's actually hearing my worship and if he accepts it and if it's a blessing to him or are there things in my life that are happening that make my worship uh, somehow disqualified to God? so what we're going to get after today is this question of what does it mean to lift high the name of Jesus in worship? And to do that, we're going to be in John 4. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them to John 4, verse 19. We're picking up in the middle of a story. It's a famous story. Jesus has just started his ministry and he's walking his way through a town in Samaria. And now most Jews wouldn't even travel through Samaria because there's racial tension between the Jews and Samaritans. But Jesus goes into a village and he meets a woman at a well and he strikes up a conversation with her. He asks her for a drink of water. She gets it for him. And then he goes, hey, how about you go bring your husband? I'd like to meet him. And the woman's like, well, I'm not married. And Jesus is like, I know that. You've actually had five husbands, and you're living with a man who's not your husband right now, right? And Jesus kind of very boldly and directly brings to light some things in her life and some things in her heart that she would have tried to keep hidden that might have been embarrassing, but some things in her life that weren't honoring to the Lord and weren't right. And that's where we pick up the story. This is how she responds to Jesus when he says that. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. All right, now there's been some debate on what the woman is meaning when she says this. Some people think that she's just trying to distract Jesus or to change the subject, right? Jesus is bringing up some pain points in her life, and she's like, let's talk about anything else other than my life right now. Let's talk about some theological questions. Right? Christians do this all the time. We would much rather, rather than dealing with what's going on in our hearts, be like, hey, can God make a rock so big he can't move it? Right? If God existed before creation, who created God? Like, we tend to go to the very theoretical rather than dealing with what's happening in our hearts. Some people thought that's what she's doing. Others have said, no, you know what? She's actually repentant right now. Look at what she said. She goes, I see that you're a prophet. And what she's doing by asking where she needs to go to worship is she's asking the question, where do I go to get right with God? Maybe she knows she needs to make a sacrifice to atone for her sin. And she's like, I want to do this right. Where do I go? Um, Can I tell you what I think the answer is? I think it's a little bit of both. I I think it's a both and, not an either or. But look how Jesus responds to her in verse 21 says, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem, you will, worship the, you will worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. All right, here's the first thing Jesus is making very clear to us this morning. It's that worship is an identity. It's not an activity. Do you see how Jesus changes the topic of the conversation? She's saying, where do I go to worship? Where do I go to do this activity? And Jesus is saying, it's not about where you go. It's about who you are. He's saying it's not just something that you can put on or off like a hat, it's actually an identity. And here's the way that I would say it. Being a worshiper of God is about being who you were designed and created to be. One of the things that God's word makes crystal clear is that we were created for and we exist to worship God. Uh, Colossians one says this, all things were made for Jesus, through Jesus, and by Jesus, and in Jesus, all things hold together. Everything's for Jesus. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all that dwells in it. Everything in here is the Lord's. Jesus tells his disciples, there's a time where Jesus is teaching and the disciples get nervous and like, all right, Jesus, we're going to follow you and we're going to preach your gospel. What if people reject us? Like, what if this doesn't work? What, what if everyone turns on us? And Jesus is like, listen, if people reject me, even the rocks will cry out. Everything that God created is designed for a purpose, and that's to give him glory. And anything outside of doing that is pulling us away from our created purpose. But look at verse 24 again. He says this. He says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So do me a favor. If you're the kind of person who takes notes in your Bible, underline that word must. That word is really important. Do you know that Jesus only uses the word must three times in the entire book of John? He he does it in three places. The first, he tells Nicodemus that in order to be saved, you must be born again. He's saying there must be a transformation. You must become a new person. The second time he uses the word must is he tells his disciples, the son of man must be lifted up. He's telling his disciples, I have to die on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. This is something that has to happen. It's part of the plan. It's necessary. And then the third is he is telling this woman that worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. All right, look at me. The fact that Jesus says must here, it elevates the importance. This means this is a non-negotiable. We have to get this right. We have to lean forward and understand what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. And so what I want to do is I kind of want to flip it this morning. And I want to start by talking about what does it mean to be a worshiper who worships God in truth. So let's start with this idea of worshiping in truth. Here's the first thing it means. It's this. It's we worship what is true about God. Part of what it means to worship in truth is we worship things that are true about God. We don't worship what we wish God was like. We don't worship what we think God might be like or how we picture him in our imagination. We worship what is true about God. So here's the question. How do we know what is true about God? Well, we look at what God has revealed about himself to us in his word. This is the source of how we worship God. We look at what he says about himself. Do you know that in John 17, 17, right before Jesus ascends back into heaven, he prays for his disciples. And he's actually praying for all people that would follow him. He's praying for you and me. And one of the things he prays for us is he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How do we know truth? We go to the word of God. A couple months ago um, at our Saturday night service, Pastor Chris was preaching, and he was talking about God, the Father, the first person of the Trinity, and he was um, referring to him in male pronouns. This is what he wants from us. This is what he calls us to. This is what he desires. And we had someone in the audience um, yell out at Pastor Chris because he was angry, and he yelled, God's not a he. And it kind of caught Chris back. (laughs) And he goes, What'd you say? God's not a he. Someone was angry that Chris was referring to God the Father in male pronouns. Okay, here's the truth that is how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. In God's word, God the Father has chosen to reveal himself in masculine pronouns, it's what's true. And by the way, if that bothers you or if that frustrates you, your issue's not with me and it's not with the patriarchy. Your issue's actually with Jesus Christ. Did you know that in the Gospels over 165 times Jesus referred to God as Father? I and the Father are one. I come to do the will of the Father. The Father is the one who sent me. Our Father who art in heaven. This isn't a thing that's up for debate or up for discussion or is unclear. Uh, This might get me in trouble, but hey, it's kickoff weekend. Why not? Um, So about 15 years ago, I'm probably already in trouble with some of you. Um, 15 years ago, there was a book that uh, came out that was a Christian book that became very, very controversial and very, very popular. And this was kind of right when I was exiting out of Bible school, graduating from Moody, and it just started being a youth pastor in Orlando. And the book was called The Shack. Some of you might remember this, and the idea behind the book is a man suffers an awful tragedy, loses his family, and he's depressed, and he's suicidal, and he's doubting everything he he knows, and he goes to a shack, and God, each person of the Trinity, meets with him in a vision. And the thing that was so kind of controversial is God the Father is represented in this book as a woman. And I remember just being out of Bible school and being in the ministry. People would ask me, hey, Cal, have you read The Shack? Or what do you think about The Shack? Or, or what's your opinion on The Shack? And I was like, you know what? If you were to open your dictionary and look up the definition of heresy, that's it. It's saying things about God that are blatantly untrue. Listen, we don't get to determine how we want to think about God or how we want to view God. God gets to determine what is true about himself. We worship God for being good. We worship God for being holy. We worship God for being powerful. We worship God for being just and righteous and almighty and King of kings and Lord of lords. You know why? Because that's how he has revealed himself to us. We worship what is true about God. Here's the second way we worship in truth. Um, It's God's word wins the argument. God's word wins the argument. What it means to worship the Lord in truth Is that we believe that God's word is holy, it's right, and it's good, and it's sufficient, okay? This is good. Our hearts are deceitful and oftentimes selfish and sinful. All right, so when there's conflict between what my heart desires and what it wants and what God's word says, we freely acknowledge it's our heart that needs to change that is the problem that needs to be transformed, not the word of God. Does that make sense? So A couple years ago, I was having a friendly argument with with a friend of mine. And um, I think she would say she's a Christian, but very different beliefs than I think many of us would have here at at Harvest, different beliefs than mine around kind of the authority of God's word. And we were having a conversation, talking about church, talking about theology. And she kind of, I think to get a rise out of me, she goes, "Um, one of the things I really hate about you, Cal, is how you view God's word as such a high authority. And I'm like, oh, really? Why, why do you hate that? And she goes, it's insulting to my intelligence. And I think she thought that I would get mad and kind of responded. She was just trying to, to poke at me. And I just kind of laughed and I smiled and I said, you know what? I think you have rightly determined the difference between you and me. And she goes, what do you mean? And I'm like, I just have the audacity to believe that I am not the greatest, wisest, most powerful being in the entire universe. She didn't appreciate that as much as I thought she would in the moment. I thought she'd be like, wow, that was a great comeback. She didn't like that. But you see, that's kind of practically what she's doing. She's saying, if what I think and if what I want and if what I believe is right is in conflict with God's word, I'm choosing myself. And I'm like, no, no, I don't believe that I am the all-powering, all-knowing creator God of the universe. We have a God who is that, and he's given us his word. And by the way, uh, look at me. Um, There is nothing that has stood the test of time in all of the universe like this book. Kingdoms have risen and fallen. Ideas have come and gone. This book has been a standard of truth throughout history and it will be through eternity because this book is a miracle. We have zero intellectual deficit with anyone when we say that God's word is an authority and it's truth. So can I ask you the question? Who's winning the argument in your life? Are there things in your life where what you want and what you desire is a bigger authority than what God's word says? Is culture winning an argument? Are friends winning an argument? Right? We can amen when we say that God's word is truth. Is it actually winning in your heart though? Do you know God's word? Is it a priority for you? We need to ask ourselves these tough questions. Here is the third way we worship in truth. It's this: uh, we embrace the tension. We embrace the tension. Some of you need to hear this this morning. You're never gonna get God into a nice clean box that you can totally understand and make sense out of. He's bigger than we are and he's smarter than us. Isaiah 55 says this, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. All right? We're never going to fully understand or grasp the mind of God and look at me. That's okay. So a couple weeks ago, um, I was able to spend a week with Mary and my dad and a few other men from the church uh, in Alaska. We went fishing. And if you've been here for a long time, you know that this is a trip that we make every so often. Going to Alaskan fishing is like my favorite thing in the world to do. And one of the cool things about going there is we go to the same place every time. So we've been able to build a relationship with the people who work at the lodge that we go to. And uh, there's a woman, her job there is she's kind of the hostess of the lodge, and her name is Stephanie. And Stephanie, she's probably in her early to mid 40s. She is the kindest, sweetest woman you'd ever want to meet. She's the kind of woman that I can be gone for four or five years. I come back, she remembers my name, and she knows what my lunch order is. I'm like, how do you do that? Like, she is just so gifted at hospitality, and, and she's sweet, and she's kind, and she's kind of like the mama of the lodge. Well, we were. Um, hanging out one of the nights, and it was very clear that something was up with Stephanie. Her eyes were glassy. She was emotional. And uh, my dad pulled me aside right before dinner, and he said, "Um, so Stephanie pulled me aside, and uh, she's really, really nervous and upset because Hurricane Idalia, uh, which is about to hit landfall tonight, is headed directly to her parents' home. And they're elderly, and they don't want to leave the house because they've got a bunch of pets, but they live six feet off of the water. And Stephanie is terrified that they're going to to die, that they're not going to make it through the night. Like, this is really, really scary. So my dad goes, I prayed with her, but I just want you to be aware of it. So later that night, she was kind of walking around one of our dinner tables and we kind of stopped her and asked, hey, what's going on with your folks? How are you doing? And you know, she starts to tear up and tells us the same thing, that she's nervous and scared, doesn't know what to do. And so we just, as a dinner table, we pray for her hey, listen, the Lord knows, the Lord's in control. Can we pray for you? And a few of the men prayed around the dinner table. Well, we go out fishing the next day and we come back and uh, I find Stephanie when we get back and I'm like, hey, have you heard from your folks? What's going on? And you know, she knows that my dad and I are pastors and she just gives me this look like, I have no idea what to do with you right now. And I'm like, what's going on? And she goes, um, Cal, I don't know how to explain this, But right when the hurricane was ready to hit landfall, it took a miraculous turn and missed my folks' house completely. They're like, they have a little bit of water in the yard. There's no flooding. There's no damage. And my folks are safe. And she looks at me and she goes, prayers are really powerful, aren't they? And I go, I think the Lord is powerful. And I think he hears our prayers. So here's what I will say. Was that a miracle? Did God miraculously change the trajectory of a storm because 12 people in a lodge in Alaska were praying for the protection of a single family? Here's the truth, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the mind of God. Here's what I do know. I do know that he is sovereign and powerful and in control of all things. And I know that he intimately responds to the prayers of his people. And guess what? That actually draws my heart to greater worship because I'm worshiping someone who's greater than me, and I don't have it all figured out, which means I'm reliant on him every single day. We embrace the tension of the fact that we serve a God that's greater than us. All right, so that's what it means to worship in truth. Let's talk quickly about worshiping in spirit. Look at verse 24 again. It says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And again, there's been some debate on what Jesus is talking about here. Some think he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's telling the woman that there's coming a day when the Holy Spirit will come and indwell Christians, and that's how true worship will happen and begin. And if you remember, uh, at the time when Christ was on earth, the presence of God was in the temple in the Holy of Holies. Right? But when Jesus died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sin, there was no longer separation between God and man. The veil in the temple and the Holy of Holies tore in two, and God's Spirit through the Holy Spirit is indwelling in followers of Jesus. Right? And so some people are like, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the giving of the Holy Spirit. Others are like, no, no, no spirit's not capitalized he's not talking about the holy spirit he's talking about our human spirit that when we worship him we give of all of ourselves to him that we involve our emotions and we involve our prayers and we involve our mind and we are giving from the deepest place in us our worship to god again you know what i think the answer is i think it's both we can't worship and know god without the work of the holy spirit in our hearts Every time I come up here and preach, before I go up and preach, I'm asking that God's Spirit would move in this place because my words are powerless without a move of the Holy Spirit. And guess, and here's the way I can best describe it if you're like, all right, tell me what you're talking about. Um, Throw up this chart. It says this To worship in spirit means that God gives himself to us to glorify and exalt Jesus. All right, God gives himself, the Holy Spirit is a part of the Trinity. Like, think about that. God dwells inside you. He has given himself to you for the purpose of glorifying and exalting Jesus Christ. Everything the Holy Spirit does in your life is to lift high the name of Jesus. He convicts us of sin. He confirms in our hearts that we are indeed children of God. He, he, he confirms in us when we are worshiping him that this is right and this is true. And Jesus is Lord and reigning and King of kings. He causes us to desire to honor the Lord. He helps us pray. God gives us his spirit that we might be worshipers of Jesus. And when we worship in spirit, we are giving ourselves for the purpose of glorifying and exalting Jesus. We can't truly worship, and we can't separate what we know in our mind from what's happening in our heart. All right, so here's the way I would describe it. Um, Do you know it's possible to come in here and fake worship? That you can come in here and you can close your eyes and you can lift your hands and you can be crying when in fact your heart is far away from God? And there's um, sin in your life that you're unrepentant of and you're going through the motions and you care more about what people see or what people think about you and you know this is what church does and you know that this is how we worship in church. So you're just going along, but your heart's completely disconnected from God. It's possible to fake it. Okay, I don't think it's possible to fake coming here, standing, arms crossed, not singing and be like, man, I'm really engaging the Lord with my entire spirit. I think you're actually communicating exactly where your heart is at. That when we worship, we are lowing ourselves and making much of Jesus Christ. You are king. You are Lord. This is true. This is right. It is all about you. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He says, God does not regard our voices. He hears our hearts. And if our hearts do not sing, we have not sung at all. To worship in spirit means that we worship with a deep sense of love, gratitude, honor, and respect at the very core of our being. All right, so here's what I want to do now. I want to change gears, and I want to talk about how this plays out at our church when we gather together in corporate worship. I want to talk about corporate worship for a minute. Uh, Here's what I want you to know about corporate worship. First is it's an act of obedience. The reason we gather together and we worship is because it is what God has clearly called us to and commanded from his people throughout all of scripture. Do you know, even all the way back in Genesis 1, at the establishment of the world, God set aside a day for the purpose of worship and rest that God created in six days. And then he set aside a day to rest and worship, not because God is tired, he is limitless. He was setting a pattern for what our lives are to look like. You see in the Old Testament, God's people setting aside the Sabbath to gather together and worship the Lord. In the time of Jesus, people would gather together at the synagogues, worship the Lord on the Sabbath. In the New Testament, when the church was established, people gathering together weekly to worship the Lord. It is a constant theme throughout Scripture. The writer of Hebrews even says, "...do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." remember a few years ago, I uh, had coffee with, with a, a kid in our 20s ministry, and I had known him super well. We were pretty close at different periods of our life, and all of a sudden, he just was a ghost. He was in the wind. Stopped coming to church, stopped coming to small group, kind of pulled away from all things uh, in our church. So I grabbed coffee with him, and I'm like, dude, where have you been? What's going on? Is there something wrong? Is there an issue? And he's like, no, Cal, I've just decided I don't need to go to church anymore, And he goes, in fact, the way that I worship is I worship when I take a walk in the woods. That's where I meet with God. And I like worshiping in the woods better. So I'm just going to do that. I'm kind of done with going to church. All right. Now, here's the question. Can you worship God by taking a walk in nature? Totally. Okay. But that doesn't mean we can neglect the way that God has commanded us to worship, which is gathering with his people in his house to lift high the name of Jesus, we worship as an act of obedience. Um, can we have some real talk right now? One of the major points of tension in our church amongst some of our pastors and leadership, not that there's disagreement, but something that we wrestle with, is what do you do with online services? Here's why. Because in some ways, online, having church online is a massive benefit because it allows people to stay connected with our ministry and with our church when they have to miss for really good reasons, right? Right? When they're sick, they, they can watch uh, online. They don't have to miss an entire weekend. When their kids are sick, they can stay connected. Uh, we've had people who have, for different health reasons, have to be shut-ins, and we're allowed to minister to them in that way. There's a lot of good that comes out of having these online services. If you have to miss a weekend, you can stay connected with your small group because you can go back and watch the sermon. People who serve, they can still be fed by the church because even though they have to miss because they're serving in children's, they can come back and watch online. Lots of Great reasons, lots of great things online services provide. But can we also agree, on the other hand, that having online services gives people an excuse to miss church for really bad reasons? I'm tired. It's cold outside. I like my flannel pajama pants, I don't want to get out of them, I'm staying home. It's nice outside. <laughs> I would rather be on the boat or in the water and I don't want to take the time to meet with the Lord and his people and to worship. We've had a busy week. We've packed our calendar too full with kids' sporting events. Do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and say, that can for sure happen. So where we've landed is, is we think the good outweighs the bad. But it is something we wrestle with. So here's what I just want to say as boldly and as clearly as I can. When you choose to neglect coming to church to worship the Lord in his house with his people, you're neglecting what God has called you to do. You're walking out of obedience and it's wrong. There is a difference with watching a church service online in your home on your terms than it is when we come to God's home and worship him on his terms. Amen? All right, rant over. We come here because we're called to. Uh, How we worship is also an act of obedience. I could preach an entire message on this next slide, but I'm just going to fly through this. When we worship, we worship the way God tells us to. There's singing, there's clapping, there's kneeling, there's bowing, there's standing, there's praying, there's playing instruments. It's ordered, it's not chaotic. We worship in a way that aligns with God's truth. All right, here's the next thing about corporate worship. Um, it's not about us. It's not about us. C.S. Lewis said this on church. I love this. He goes, As long as you notice and have to count the steps, you are not yet dancing, but only learning to dance. A good shoe is a shoe that you don't notice. A good reading becomes possible when you, don't, when you need not consciously think about the eyes or the light or print or spelling. The perfect church service would be one we were almost unaware of. Our attention would have been on God. Isn't that great? Great. That when we worship, we call ourselves a vertical church. Here's what that means. That when we come here, we want our focus and our attention to be on the Lord. It's not about us. It's not about our preferences. It's not about what we want. One of my favorite lines in all of Scripture is when John the Baptist sees Jesus and baptizes him and says, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His disciples are like, well, what do we do, John? Do we stay with you or do we go with Jesus? You know what John says? He says, I must decrease, but he must increase. It's about him. It's not about me. One of the decisions we made early on in our church is we said, we're not going to be a church that has worship wars. Here's what I mean. We said, we're not going to be a church that argues over how much we play the organ or how many hymns we have or what type of songs, or what type of worship. And I I just want to hear you. I have very limited patience for people who want to come and complain about the songs that we are singing or the songs that we're not singing. Here's why, because I view that as a symptom of someone who's coming into church being like, this is about me and this is what I want and I want to have what I want. Listen, there have been songs that we've sung at our church that I've absolutely loved that they said, you know what, it it served its time in our church, we're putting it away. And I'm like, man, I love that song though. Guess what? It's not about me, I don't care. There's been songs that, that we have sung that's like, man, this isn't my preference, it's not my favorite song. I can still worship the Lord through it because it's not about me. Every song that we sing, we can point to Scripture and say that it's true. And when we come here, can I ask you a question? Who are your eyes on? What is your intention? What is your focus? What is your purpose? Is it about you or is it about making much of our God? Do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and say, it's not about you. It's not about us. Then here's the third thing I want to show you about our corporate worship It involves both spirit and truth. We're trying to honor what Jesus says in John 4 when we gather together. Here's what I mean. I want to make this very clear. I think most Christians think that church service is two parts. There's the worship, then there's the preaching. All right, can I tell you something? That's wrong. It's all worship. When we sing... We are worshiping God in spirit, telling him true things about himself. We are giving of ourselves, saying God, your name is great, your name is powerful, your name is mighty. We are singing the hymn of heaven where you reign. We are giving of ourselves to worship in spirit and in truth. And when God's word is preached and you sit under it and you listen and you view it as the authority that is also worshiping in spirit and in truth. It's leaning forward saying, God, I want to hear from you and I want to change and I want you to move and I Submitting myself to your word. One of the things that encourages me so much as a pastor, I have this happen almost once a weekend, where after the service, you know, our pastors and elders are up front, we pray and meet with people. Someone will come to me and they'll be like, hey Cal, um I, I missed one of the points in in your outline. Okay, can you fill this in for me? And they'll hand me the outline. And here's what I love: it's like covered front to back with notes. And there's references and there's verses. And I'm like, man, this person has leaned forward and they really care. And they're like filling this thing out like mad. Like I love it when I throw up a slide on the screen and all of a sudden I see cameras go up and take pictures. It's like, yeah, a a lot of our our older people are like, yeah, I totally do that, right? I don't have time to write all this nonsense down, right? I'm gonna take a picture of it because I wanna remember it and I wanna have it with me. I'm like, I love being part of a church that leans into the word of God. It's a massive blessing. What I want to encourage you with is that is just as much worship when we allow God to speak to us as when we speak back to God. The whole thing is moving one direction. Don't separate what happens here when we gather. We don't worship to prepare our hearts for a sermon. We preach as an act of continued worship that we might become even better worshipers. All right, so as we close, I just kind of want to close with tying this together. Here's the goal of what it means to be a church that lifts high the name of Jesus in worship. It's this. We want to be a church that is alive to the awesome presence of God in everything that worship is an identity and it involves every aspect of our lives. And and here's the best way I can describe this. Again, I was in Alaska a couple weeks ago and one of the days I was fishing on a river and it was kind of near the end of the day and and I was tired and it had been cold and it had been rainy and and I'm just fishing. I'm minding my own business. I'm working on my cast. I'm watching it drift down the river. I'm mending the line. I'm doing all the things I need to do, just minding my own business. And all of a sudden the guide goes very, very quietly and very calmly, "Uh, hey Cal, you need to look up. And I look up, and this thing was standing about 25 yards away from me. Uh, That's about a 600-pound—I just had an iPhone camera, so not the greatest quality, and I'm also going like this, you know. Um, That's a 600-pound mama bear who had two cubs with her, which if you know anything about running into bears in the wild, what you don't want to startle is a mom with cubs. They will be the most aggressive. Well, she decides to walk to about 20 yards away from my boat and just plant herself there and start fishing for her cubs, She's not nervous at all. She's not worried at all. She's just minding her own business, doing her own thing. But here's the truth. When you come across a 600 pound grizzly bear, you become very alive to the reality that you are in the presence of something that is greater, stronger, bigger than you, and that could tear you to shreds in a heartbeat. So the bear's minding her own business. Guess what I'm not doing? I'm not minding my own business anymore. Right, like my eyes are on that bear and I'm like sort of fishing, but I'm just like watching this thing the whole time because I'm in the presence of something that's greater than me. And as I'm doing this, I'm like, what a cool picture of what it means to live as a worshiper. That in everything we do, whether it be our marriage, is my focus only on my marriage and what I want and what I can get from it and what we desire? Or are our eyes alive to the reality That our marriage is designed and exists to glorify and worship god that i'm in the presence of god right now right when i'm in an argument when i'm angry do i just let my anger run wild and i do what i want and i say what i want and everything i believe i throw out the window or am i alive to the fact that i am still called to worship and honor and glorify the lord with my tongue even if i'm rightfully angry if people were to run an audit on your books and your finances, would they see people who are alive to the presence of God? Would they see people who are generous with the Lord and with others or would they see people who are practically living only for themselves in what with what they have? Listen, when you raise your kids, what's your goal? Is your goal what makes them happy and what makes them like you and how they can be the best at whatever they're good at? Is it all about elevating them? Or is it like, man, you know what? My kids are designed to know, love and worship God. And so I've got to work to turn my kid's head and help him be alive to the awesome presence of God in everything. So that means we might say no to some good things so we can say yes to some greater things. That means that I've got to see the areas in my kid's heart where they are prone and bent towards sin. And I've got to redirect that back to the Lord. And that doesn't mean that they're always gonna like it. We wanna be a church that lifts high the name of Jesus in worship. And that means we are a church that prioritizes the presence of God in all things. Amen? All right, let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this church. I thank you for this people. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you've given us truth. Man, God, how terrifying would it be if we had to navigate our lives with just our own wisdom? God, would you help us? Would you move in us? Would you change us? We love you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.